we turn to God's word and uh, again we turn to the first chapter. We're going to read from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 24. Uh, The narrative beginning with the sixth day of creation. We read on as far as chapter 2 and verse 3. Then we read a little further, a little later on in chapter 2. So chapter 1, verse 24. Let's hear God's word this morning. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man In his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing. That moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day, from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's go a little further now into chapter 2 to verse 18 and read from there to the end of the chapter. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We keep our Bibles open there, but also back in chapter 1, particularly in verse 27, where we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, them, male and female, he created them. When I decided after a fair bit of thought and prayer some months ago that I would do a series in the mornings on biblical foundations, which is what we've been doing since Easter, it was this theme, more than any other, that was at the forefront of my mind. Man, that is humanity, as male and female. And I come to this subject with, I'm honest, a degree of feeling somewhat daunted. Not because in itself the subject is complicated or difficult, but because this issue has become, over a number of years, so heated, so debated, so controversial, and therefore it is all the more urgent that we, as Christians who have the Bible as our guide, know the mind of God on the subject of man as male and female. It opens up this question, many other questions, questions to do with marriage, with the family, with sexuality, with the roles of men and women in the church and in the family. And we may come to some of these in future weeks as we look again, and maybe for a third time, at this theme. But this morning I want to ask and answer just really one question. What does the Bible teach us about humanity as male and female? Let's, as God's people, be clear about that today. And then another time we can come back and ask other questions. How do we need to apply this in our own very specific situation that we find ourselves in? Now, let me make my my starting point, which is really this. The creation of man as male and female is described 
right at the beginning of human history. That initial creation of the human race at the beginning of human history begins with the division into male and female. It is foundational. It is essential. It is the only distinction, indeed the only division, which is set in place from the very beginning. What do I mean? Well, I look around this room at all your faces, and I can see, and you can see with me, great variety and great diversity in this congregation of about 75 or so people. We see it in terms of age and in terms of ethnicity, in terms of physical features, in terms of occupation, in terms of abilities, in terms of personalities, in terms of general appearance and language and culture and dress and so much more. And this diversity makes the whole human race very, very interesting. But right back in the beginning, none of this diversity was there or is mentioned at all. The one and only great foundational distinction is between male and female. And even as I say that, a question may be occurring to your minds. It certainly occurred to my mind a few days ago. Isn't male and female something that we all share in common with most animal and plant and other life in the world anyway? Isn't being male or female simply a biological fact of life without which there could be no reproduction and spread of any species. And therefore, haven't we basically inherited that male and female in an evolutionary sense from animal ancestors? It's a genuine question. And even in this first chapter of Genesis, in verse 23, we see that the creatures that God made were told to go and be fruitful and multiply. Exactly the same instructions that are given to the man and the woman in verse 28. And you read that and you think, oh, well, there is really no difference. Dogs and cats and elephants and other mammals and uh, birds and reptiles and fish and insects and many other animals and plants. Indeed, they are male and female, and uh, we are like them, so therefore surely we have come from them. Now, how do we answer that question? It's a very important question. Where does male and female come from? How do we define male and female? Where do we go to see a definition of what male and female means? And the answer is that we need to remember that this world and everything in it was made as a home for our race. 
our human race. The creation of man as male and female was the great goal of God's created order. If you like, the creation of man as male and female was God's signature work. He kept the best till last, but everything was working towards that point. Man, and the word man, Adam in the Hebrew, implies the whole race, the whole species if you like. Man was made as male and female. Now what that means is this, try and understand. The categories of male and female are defined in terms of the human race. Where do we see the prototype, the blueprint, the perfect exhibition of what male and female means? Answer, in humanity. Male and female in different species, in animals and plants and others, is derived from and dependent on the male and female of the human species. It's not the other way round. God made this earth for man. Indeed, he made it ultimately for his own son who would assume human nature. So male and female is defined in terms of humanity first and then by derivation in terms of lower creatures. We need to understand that. Male and female begins with the human race, not in terms of time, but in terms of logical order and understanding. Now, having dealt with that, we need to see positively what the Bible teaches about man as male and female. And there are two things here which are so, so important. And I'll look at them both. There's, first of all, the essential equality of male and female. And then there is, secondly, the biblical order of male and female. And you need them both together in harmony. I say in harmony, I do not say intention. It's only sin that brings tension really into the world. From the beginning, it was not so. There was harmony. So what do we see? We see the essential equality of male and female. What are we told here in Genesis 1 verse 27? God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice the hymns and the thems. They're very important. And this is the point. The image of God in the human race is seen in both male and female. Not in one more than the other. Not in one rather than the other. Let me put it to you like this so that everybody here knows that they belong to what I'm saying. The man or the boy 
in this congregation is a divine image bearer. The woman or the girl in this congregation is equally a divine image bearer. I could elaborate more and say the oldest person and the youngest person are equally divine image bearers. Those who are not here because of frailty or ill health or age are divine image bearers. And yes, even those outside, those who are not Christians at all, have no interest in the things of God, they are nonetheless equally divine image bearers. But I'm talking this morning about male and female specifically. There is no hierarchy. There is no pecking order when it comes to this question of the dignity and honor and value and worth of a human being as to whether they are male or female. Male and female stand together on the same podium, both, as it were, with a gold medal round their neck as those made in the image and likeness of God. The soul of the male, the soul of the female are equally precious. And this finds particularly important expression in the New Testament in relation to the church. You remember how in Galatians 3 verse 28, Paul says this. He says that in the church of Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. And he goes even further and says, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Absolutely. Men and women, boys and girls, have the same essential worth to God as human beings and in the church. We have the same standing as male and female. Thinking about the church in particular for a few moments. The same Lord Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of both men and women in an absolutely equal sense. Praise and thank God for that. We don't sit in this church in two blocks with men on one side and women on the other implying some kind of inherent inequality between man and woman. God forbid we should do that. Our identity as believers, as people who have been redeemed and united to Christ, is of far greater importance and consideration than even whether we are male or female. It is our ultimate identity that we are souls in Jesus Christ. And I'll come back to that right at the end, briefly. But that essential equality is only one part of what needs to be said from the Scriptures. The second part, predictably, unavoidably, is going to take maybe slightly longer than the first part to deal with. And that is looking at the subject of biblical order. There's essential equality between male and female. Make that clear in your minds. But there is a biblical order. 
observed in this text. Because it says, male and female, he created them. It does not say female and male. In the Bible, the words male and female in that order, in this English Standard Version which I use, those three words in that order, male and female, appear some 26 times. The words female and male in that order never appear at all. And that's what we need to understand now. So we need to draw a conclusion from this. The order of male and female matters to God, the creator. It's written into the Bible, which is the word of God. We are not at liberty to change that order around or to say that the order doesn't matter. And it's a free-for-all, and no one cares, because actually God cares enough to write it into his word here and elsewhere. Now remember, we've been thinking for a few Sunday mornings about God the creator. God the master craftsman. And we thought two weeks ago about creation in general. And we said that God observed an order in what he made. For example, on day two, God made the sea and the sky. And on day five, he populated the sea and the sky with fish and with birds. The order mattered to the divine craftsman. He didn't make the fish and the birds first and leave them without a home to thrive in for three days and only then make the sea and the sky for them, did he? That would have been wrong. That would have been the wrong order. He made the sea and the sky as an environment for the fish, for the birds, and then he made those fish and birds and he put them there afterwards. The order counts. A gardener will weed the flower bed before planting the, for example, hydrangeas, roses, and lavender, to think of three fairly random plants. The painter will sand a wall down before he applies the undercoat to that wall. The chef will mix the ingredients together before shoving them into the oven. If Steve put into the oven uh, some, some eggs that were still in their shells and several ounces of flour and some sugar and whatever else he puts in, it wouldn't be a cake when it came out. The order matters. And we see it observed here. And then we see particularly in our second reading from chapter 2 an elaboration, an expansion of that creation account in which the reason for the order is given. Come to chapter 2 and verse 18. And God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The more we read into this narrative from verse 18 to verse 25, the clearer it becomes that it's talking particularly about marriage. Now, I don't want this morning to speak specifically about marriage. 
That may come another time, and I'm sure it will. But the important principle here is this. The man was created first, and the woman was created from the man, from his very body, to be a helper fit for the man. That's the biblical order. And it's an order that is observed elsewhere in the Bible. The Apostle Paul in two places makes it abundantly clear that he understands and believes and holds to this as inspired scripture. For example, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 8. He says there, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And then particularly in 1 Timothy 2, verse 13, Paul says, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. You see that. Now, I don't want to look at those passages in any great detail this morning, but they underline, let me say this again, that with this essential equality between male and female as absolutely equal in terms of worth and value and dignity and in the church of Jesus Christ being equal souls, there remains in the word of God a principle of order of male and then female. Now how is that to be expressed? Now, this is where, as a preacher, I must be particularly careful with my words. I don't want to offend anybody, and I'm not going to offend anybody, the Lord being my helper this morning. But the only safe way that I can do that is to keep our attention firmly fixed on the Word of God and not to go off into strange, foreign, and unhelpful territory. And if we keep the Bible central, as with everything, we can say things clearly and boldly. What I say this morning, I trust, is rooted in the Word of God. I hope and pray it always is. If it isn't, then you must come and challenge me, and I invite you, and I indeed charge you to challenge me if I wander away from the Word of God. Very well then, what shall we say? The Bible everywhere teaches... That headship, that leadership, belongs to the man. For example, this is expressed in relation to marriage. Ephesians 5 and verse 23, where Paul tells the church in Ephesus that the husband is the head of the wife. And also it's said in relation to teaching and authority in the church. This is what the scripture says. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather she is to remain quiet. And he then goes on in the very next verse to explain why he says that. It's because of this creation order. It's because the man was made first and the woman was made from the man. It's for that reason, says Paul, that a man in church exercises authority 
and leads and teaches and not a woman to teach over men. Now I'm stating this as simply and as plainly as I can. Many of you will know this. For the last 50 years or so, these passages have been hotly, sometimes brutally, contested and challenged. And the usual line of argument is this. The Apostle Paul, who wrote these words, was just a man of his times. He was a member of a patriarchal society. When he lived 2,000 years ago, men did everything and uh, men ruled and women were the lowest of the low compared to the men. And if Paul had lived now in the 21st century in our own more enlightened and liberated times, he would never ever have written such things as he wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, I want to ask all of you a question. What do you think about what I'm saying this morning? What if you're feeling to yourself that these teachings are actually, you might say, sexist, offensive, chauvinistic, elitist, patriarchal, puritanical, Victorian, old-fashioned, obsolete, and all the rest of it. What if you feel like saying, come on now, Paul, this Paul, and the other Paul too. Isn't it about time we dragged the church even into the 20th century, let alone the 21st century? I mean, haven't you heard of the suffragettes of 110 or so years ago? When women are doing everything that men do and people are following the Women's World Cup with great avidness as much as with the men's 12 months ago, isn't it about time that we put to bed all of this stuff about men being leaders and having authority? Well, it boils down to one question. It all boils down to this question. Is the Bible the Word of God? Is the Bible the Word of God? And is it a word for all times and all places and all cultures and all peoples? Is it a word that has divine and human, uh, sorry, that has divine and universal authority? If it is just the opinion of a man called Paul who lived 2,000 years ago and was conditioned by his own upbringing, his patriarchal environment and culture, and that culture has long since passed away, then we might as well rip these pages out of our Bibles and be done with them. Agreed. If Paul is only writing from his own human prejudices, then let's tear those pages out of our Bibles and say they have nothing to do with us. But there's a problem there. You start tearing one page out of the Bible, you'll start tearing other pages out very well, as well, before very long. And before you know it, you'll have no Bible left. And no revelation left. And no truth from God whatsoever. 
and then we are blind and in the dark. If this Bible is what it claims to be, the God-breathed, unerring, trustworthy, and binding Word of God, then you and I and all of us have no option but to give attention and obedience to what it says. Let me give you other things to chew on this morning. There is a biblical order, you see. When God first created the human race, long before there was any such thing as patriarchal culture or any human culture of any kind, God created humanity, male and female. And he did so freely as sovereign Lord for his own purposes. He wasn't kowtowing to any patriarchal culture when he did that. And that order is observed in different ways throughout the Bible. It was Adam, the first man, who was representative of the human race. It was Moses, a man, who was appointed to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. We could speak equally of Noah and Abraham and David and Elijah, all of them men who were leaders of God's people in their own generation. I will add even this. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior for all who believe, for men and women, for boys and girls equally, became a man and remains a man. Jesus Christ is not a woman. And you may say, well, of course, we all know that. But let me tell you this. Many attempts have been made to depict Jesus as if he were a woman. Or, shall we say, transgender which is for another day. And to do any such thing is blasphemy against the man Christ Jesus. When the Lord Jesus called his apostles, he called 12 men, but he didn't call any women. And this is the Jesus who appeared to women at his resurrection who was ministered to by many women, who was born of a virgin woman, of course, who was the first to hear about his coming into the world. All of these things need to be borne in mind. But the leaders of the early church were men. And the handing on of the baton in the church from the apostles onwards, says the apostle Paul to Timothy, is to faithful men who will be able to teach other men. I will say this. When the church of Jesus Christ is in good health, holding fast to the word of God, seeking to be faithful in everything, this biblical pattern of male headship is followed and it results in clarity 
and in blessing for God's people. But when it is, starts to become loosened and compromised and questioned and eroded, you have invariably a lack of clarity, a lack of authority, a lack of shape, and all sorts of things begin to go wrong. I say these things because the Word of God says these things and Christian history confirms these things. But I want to come to a conclusion that must be said before I finish. You'll have noticed that I've said a good deal more about the biblical order than I have about the essential equality. And there's a very good reason why. The question of order, of male and then female, is a good deal more controversial than the question of equality. Now, why might that be? I'll tell you why. In today's society, in our so-called liberal free society, equality has become the absolute requirement. Equality across the board in every single respect. Everyone, everything, every idea, every practice must be viewed as equal. And there are great efforts and have been efforts afoot for centuries, certainly the last 150 years, to impose equality. The goal is nothing other than full equality. Equality becomes a kind of God. Everyone must be absolutely equal. But doesn't the history of our fallen race show us this? That a merely human attempt to manufacture some kind of equality only ever leads to a different and worse kind of inequality. If you've read any George Orwell, you will know what I'm talking about. This is the tragedy, and this sounds political, and this is not directly from the word. This is where I stand, though. This is the tragedy of Marxism in all its various forms, that it results in misery and poverty, even though it tries to aim and says it's aiming at equality. Now, let me come straight back to the Scriptures. True wisdom is founded in understanding that equality with order, founded on biblical principles, have to coexist harmoniously for the good of human societies. Now, let me come to a conclusion by relating an incident that maybe illustrates this. A long time ago, I say a long time ago, a long time ago in my life anyway, about 1992, I was a Sunday school teacher in a church up in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. The reason, by the way, that I say Newcastle rather than Newcastle is because I spent about 18 years of my life living in Newcastle. Okay. I was a Sunday school teacher there. And on one occasion, 
I or my colleague happened to make a straightforward statement, which was this, one I've just said about five minutes ago. Jesus was a man. That's all that was said. Jesus was a man. And one 14-year-old girl in that Sunday school class burst out in animated fashion and said in broad Geordie, you cannot see that man. That's kind of a bit of Jordan Caribbean mix there, I think. You, you can't say that, sir. It's sexist. To say that Jesus is a man is sexist. I could say at this point, discuss, but I won't. Well, think for a few seconds while I compose myself after having tried to uh, impersonate a Geordie and being transplanted about 4,000 miles southwest into the middle of Jamaica. I've often thought about that. It would be too easy to dismiss this young lady who must now be in her early 40s as simply ignorant and failing to see the facts that Jesus was obviously male and not female. Silly girl. Could easily say that. But just possibly there's something in her words that we should all take note of. And it's this. Did her protestation imply that somehow, being female, she felt disqualified or prohibited from really knowing Jesus, from being close to Jesus, that somehow Jesus is more of a savior and friend to to males than females. And this is where we have to answer that sort of question very, very emphatically indeed. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of everyone who believes in him equally, whether male or female. Understand that. I'll say it again. The first person to be told that a child whose name was Jesus, who would be the Son of God, was coming into this world, was his own virgin mother Mary. The first people to be told that Jesus had risen from the dead were some other Marys and other ladies, Salome and Joanna and others who went to the tomb on that Sunday morning. And we can go on. In the book of Acts, we read of the faith and the belief of a number of prominent women ahead of the men. And of Lydia, who believed in Philippi. Of Priscilla, who is more often than not mentioned ahead of her husband, Aquila. This patriarchal Paul often greets Priscilla, the wife, before Aquila, the husband. He's prepared to do that. Absolutely. They were meeting the early church in the home of the mother of John Mark. We read of the faith of Lois, or Lois, and Eunice, the grandmother and the mother of Timothy. 
we could go on. In how many churches is it the case that the praying and the caring and the practical help and the real exercise of faith is most strongly seen in the women of that church? I would suggest very, very many indeed. But in saying this, let me not fall into a kind of inversing of the situation and say, sisters are doing it for themselves, girl power time. Right? That would be contradicting everything I've said and everything the Word of God says. We're not here to set up any competition or contrast between males and females. Rather, we're saying this. God made the human race, male and female, so that all of us, male and female, might know him, be found by him, be forgiven and saved by him through Jesus Christ now and forever. And that is the gospel of the Son of God who gave himself for men and women and boys and girls all over the world in every age that you may know him and love him who first loved us. We'll pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, who in wisdom created the world and put man, male and female, in this world, we come to you now. We pray that you would make all of these matters clear in our own minds, that we may understand, that we may be equipped in a world that denies all of your revelation. O oh Lord our God, where we need correcting, where we have been swayed by worldly thinking about this or any other matter, we pray that your word and your spirit and the counsel and encouragement of your people may assist us and straighten us and reassure us. We thank you especially that whether Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, slave or free, black or white, or any ethnicity, but above all, whether male or female, we all may know you as our God and Savior. And we come to you now, and we pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.